Um, as I said earlier, we're studying in First Thessalonians. We're starting this new series. And um, a little bit of background, there are two letters in the New Testament that are written to the church in Thessalonica. Um, you'll see those as, as the last two in the section of the New Testament of Paul's letters. The epistles of Paul all come together in the New Testament. And before we move on to his pastoral epistles, the letters that he wrote to individuals, we have the two letters to the Thessalonians. These are the last in the two letters to the churches. But while they are the last in that section of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians was probably one of the first books written in our New Testament. So before even the Gospels were uh, finished and written, the book of 1 Thessalonians was written somewhere in the region between 50 and 60 AD. We're interested in, in 1 Thessalonians in these studies. And 2 Thessalonians is a slightly different book. And even if you were to read the two, one after the other, you'd notice a different tone coming from Paul in those two letters. Why was 1 Thessalonians written? Who was it written to? Before we start into the actual text, of the letter. Let's get an idea of who the Thessalonians are. If you've lifted one of the handouts, you'll see a map there of the Mediterranean Sea, the Adriatic Sea, and the Aegean Sea, that whole area of Macedonia and Achaia. And Thessalonica is just up at the top, uh, slightly to the right of the middle uh, in, your, in the picture. It's a very important city. In Macedonia. It's a port city. You can see it there. It's on the sea. Very important port city. Um, the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica were the first cities, the first places that the gospel came to in Europe. It was during his second missionary journey that Paul, along with his companion Silas, he, he was trying to preach the gospel in a number of places in Asia, but they were prevented from doing so. They, they just couldn't find a door for the gospel. And the book of Acts makes it clear for us that it's the Holy Spirit who is barring their way, who's stopping them from being able to preach in Asia. They tried in Mysia, they tried in Bithynia, but they just weren't able. In Acts chapter 16, it tells us that they were prevented by the Holy Spirit. I think there's something to be said, even in the way that Paul and Silas are acting in Acts chapter 16, there's something to be said to us about the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. But Paul is different from us. Paul was an apostle, we are not apostles. But you should notice that Paul and his companions didn't just sit and wait for the Holy Spirit to zap them and tell them where to go. They tried things, they, they pushed doors, they, they went to certain places and certain areas and they saw whenever situations were barring them from preaching the gospel, well, they knew that was the Holy Spirit. In our lives, we so often want to know the will of God. And I think this is especially pertinent for young people. We want to know the guidance of God on certain things, maybe what we should do or what we shouldn't do where we should go, where we should stay. 
whenever we get on to chapter four of Thessalonians, we're going to see what the will of God is. There's a, a teaser for you in chapter four. But I want to note at this point that so long as something isn't sinful, then we're permitted to, to try things, to, to push doors, to, to seek God's guidance through experience. If something doesn't work out, well, then it's not the will of God. That's how God's will works. Anything that happens is in the will of God. Paul didn't know that he was supposed to be headed for Europe, so he kept plodding on. He kept trying to serve God where he was. And every time it didn't work out, he tried somewhere else. Until eventually, God showed Paul in a dream that he should head for Macedonia. Now, in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, we read about this dream. We read Paul, and he's in Troas at this point. You can see Troas on the right-hand side of your map. He's in Troas, and he sees a man of Macedonia calling him. And the man says, come over to Macedonia and help us. So that's what Paul did. They went to Macedonia and they began in Philippi. And then from Philippi, they traveled to Thessalonica. Like I said, Thessalonica is an important city. It's a port city on the Aegean Sea in the northern part of the Aegean Sea. But it was also on a, a trade route, a land trade route called the Ignatian Way. And that ran from Rome and across the Adriatic Sea, and then all the way from there into Asia. So it was a really important kind of crossroads between the seaport and the road port. So you can imagine the sort of place that Thessalonica was, very busy, heavily populated, people coming and going from all over the known world. A wealthy place, lots of money changing hands between various traders, deals going on. And in this place, there was a synagogue. In the synagogue is where Paul went first. That was Paul's custom. That's how Paul approached evangelism. He went to the synagogue and he preached. And he preached there on three consecutive Sabbaths. Acts chapter 17 tells us that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, as a result of hearing the gospel, some of them were persuaded. A great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the missionaries didn't stay in Thessalonica very long. You see, the local Jews became envious. And it's over this, these people called the devout Greeks. In the synagogues, there were quite a few non-Jews that would hang about and listen to the teaching. They're often called God-fearers. These are people who are interested in Judaism, but they haven't converted to Judaism. Devout Greeks. The local Jews became envious that the Christians were taking the God-fearers away from the Jewish religion and they were converting to Christ. And so, as often happened for Paul and his companions, there's an uproar in the city. And the Jews' accusation to, against Paul and Silas was, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. 
Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So as you can imagine, this is a pretty serious claim. Paul and Silas are being accused of treason. Thessalonica is part of the Roman Empire, and so Caesar is king over Thessalonica. Paul and Silas are claiming that Jesus is king. So they're accused of treason and they're run out of town. This affects the new converts there as well. That man, a man by the name of Jason, with whom they were staying, presumably. Well, he was arrested and he had to pay bail to be released. And then in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas make escape and they head for the town of Berea. And you can see Berea on your map as well. So that's the background. That's how the church was started in Thessalonica. With only a few weeks of preaching in the synagogue, the church was established. And so I think now we can turn and, and we'll read Thessalonians chapter 1, if you have it in your Bibles or it's on the back of your handout as well. Although Paul was only there a short time, you'll notice these things as we read chapter 1. The church is strong. They're strong in the Lord. They have a good grasp of the gospel. They do have questions, and we'll come to the questions probably in later weeks. But this letter is mainly one of love and fellowship and encouragement. It's a letter from Paul who planted the church to those who have kept it going through faith and love. And you'll notice as we read Paul's affectionate tone throughout the letter. He wants to encourage these people. And his main encouragement for them is to do with the hope that Christians have through the second coming of Christ. And you can see that because every chapter ends by speaking about the return of Christ. Now, the chapter markings aren't something that Paul put in there. Those have been added later. But because it comes up so often, we can tell that it's a major theme of what Paul wants to say. So let me read for us Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians and chapter 1. This is God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labour of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we have to you, 
and how you turned from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. So we're going to work through this fairly systematically. I'll I'll try and keep pointing you to um, where we're at as we work through. Um, You've got your your hand out there as well to kind of guide us along the way. Paul begins in his usual way. There's a greeting. He brings peace and grace from God. And that's Paul's style. This is a letter which is undoubtedly written by Paul. But he also includes that it's from Silvanus, which is another name for Silas, and from Timothy. These are men who are known to the Thessalonians, and that would encourage the Thessalonians that it's from uh, Silas and Paul, or Timothy as well as Paul. What do you notice how Paul addresses the church? He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, without digging into the meaning of each of the words of and in, I think it's clear that Paul's making a distinction here. As Christians, we are different and set apart from the world. We live here, we are of this place, but our location is in God, it's in Christ. Right from the start, Paul wants to recognize and affirm that the Christians in Thessalonica are different from the rest of that city. They're different from the the hustle and the bustle, from the the trade deals and the big money of Thessalonica. That's what we're going to see as we look at the rest of the chapter. I've called the series, What Does a Christian Look Like? And here in this opening chapter, we see a number of character traits, of, of characteristics of a Christian. And these are what Paul is giving thanks to God for in his prayers. You can see there in verse two, he's saying that he prays for them. He gives thanks to God always for them all. And then he goes on to list, to list uh, what he remembers without ceasing in verse three. I think we can probably learn something from Paul here about our own prayers. Look at what Paul is praying for. I know that I don't always pray like this. Even in my prayers of thanksgiving, I can be quite selfish and self-centered. I thank God for what he has done for me. Even in church, I thank God for what he has done for us. But Paul's prayers aren't to do with Paul. They're to do with the Thessalonians. He's thanking God for what he's doing in other people. Often as sinful human beings, we are moved to jealousy when we hear of another Christian who's doing well or another church who is seeing good spiritual growth. Maybe that's just me, but what Paul is doing here is thanking God for what God is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. There's no jealousy. Maybe we should pray like that. We should be motivated to thank God for what he's doing in the lives of others in our congregations, in the presbytery, in the PCI, across denominations. The devil would draw us into competition with one another and have us hate one another. But as we pray with thanksgiving for one another, we grow in our love of one another. We should thank God 
for the work that he is doing with other people. Well, the whole of chapter one then is really about thanksgiving. It's, it's an encouragement. Paul is so encouraging in this chapter. He wants the Thessalonians to be sure and to be certain in their Christian faith. Remember, Paul hadn't been with them for very long, maybe only three weeks. So what he was able to teach them in three weeks would have been limited. I have been in the congregation of Jared's Pass and Kings Mills for over a year now, and, and, and I have so much more that I want to tell you. I am not anywhere near the preacher or teacher that Paul is. So what he did in three weeks with the Thessalonians, well, it was, it's astounding. Then we remember, of course, that the Holy Spirit is taking part in this. And the Holy Spirit is the one, as we will see, who is applying the word of God. Paul's first chapter is encouragement and it's commendation of what they have become, who they have become through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see there in verse four that Paul says he knows they are the elect of God. He knows it. He knows they are God's chosen and holy people. And he knows that because they look like Christians. What does a Christian look like? Well, Look at verse five, you'll see a Christian is someone who has heard the word of God preached. We saw what Paul preached in Acts, a simple gospel about the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah and that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. Well, someone is a Christian, someone who hears that, not only hears it, but believes it. To them, it's, it's not just words, it's the word of God. The Holy Spirit takes those words from the mouth of a man and makes a Christian believe the words in their heart. But even more than that, the Holy Spirit motivates them in their belief to action. Faith changes the way we live, changes the way the Thessalonians lived in an obvious way. And they become like other Christians. They become like Paul and Timothy and Silas. We'll say more about that in chapter two. But you can see in, in verse six, they became followers of us, of Paul and of the Lord. We don't see a, a distinction in Paul's writing here that, that many would want us to see between faith and works. Many people would want to put faith and works against each other. But what we see in this opening chapter of Thessalonians is that faith in Jesus means living in a certain way. Faith results in action. In the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, we talk about a credible profession of faith. That's the basis on which we accept someone into membership of the church. We don't only ask if people are willing to say that Jesus is Lord, but we ask, is that making a difference in their life? Being a Christian means living in a way that is different from those around us, from those who are not Christians. And that difference is obvious. It's so obvious, in fact, that Paul tells the Thessalonians in verse 7 that they became examples to the churches around them. 
The churches around them looked at the Thessalonians and said, that's what a Christian looks like. The gospel made a noticeable difference in the lives of these people. You can see again in verse 8 that the word of God sounded forth from them. It's been announced by them in the, in the way that they say things, in the way that they live. Of course, it's sounded forth in the things that they say. Of course, that's the case. But it's accompanied by their action. Their faith in God has gone out. Paul feels he doesn't need to say anything to anyone else about the faith of the Thessalonians. It's so obvious in the way that they live. What are those character traits? What is it that Paul says is true about the Thessalonians? What's changed in them? Remember the, the city that they're living in? Remember what's going on around them? It's not that different from the world that we're living in, is it? A world where money is everything. Money really, really matters. A place where saying Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, will have you run out of town. A place where being a Christian means living very differently from the world around you. We probably have more in common today with Thessalonica in the first century than we do with Christians living in Northern Ireland a hundred years ago. We've been brought back to the New Testament in the world that we're living in. I want you to look with me at verse three. See what Paul remembers without ceasing. There are three things he commends them for. And these three really form the basis and the theme for the whole letter. There is work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Faith, love, and hope. Three qualities of, of a Christian, of the Christian faith, that Paul mentions often in his letters. And these serve as evidence, not really for Paul, but for the Thessalonians themselves, that they are doing the right things, that they are living the right way, the way that they should be living according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A way that you could not live unless you had the Holy Spirit active in your life. The things that are in the Thessalonians are a demonstration of, a, of the life of a Christian person who is walking by the Spirit. Well, they have faith that works, love that labors, and hope that is patient. And you can see, I've put it there on your uh, handout. These are the basis of the past, the present, and the future of the Christian life. Faith that is rooted and grounded in the past, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Love that labors in the present. And a future hope of the return of Jesus. But all three of these, we don't just walk in love, we walk on the basis of our faith. We walk in the knowledge of the hope that we have. These, all three of them, affect the practicalities of daily life. 
And to see how that plays out for the Thessalonians, I want you to scan down to verses 9 and 10 and see how they marry up with verse 3. In verses 9 and 10, we see the Thessalonians have turned to God from idols. They serve the living and true God, and they wait for the return of Christ. A demonstration of their faith, love, and hope. Their faith has made them turn away from idols. Their love of God has made and still makes them serve the living and true God. And their hope is what makes them wait patiently for the Son. Christians are people who have faith that works, love that labours, and hope that is patient. What does it mean to have faith that works? We've seen this in Mark over the last few weeks. Remember the woman with the issue of bleeding? She had to act. She had to touch Jesus' cloak. We've seen it even in the last week. Jesus is challenging the disciples to do something. You go and see how much bread you have. It's not just believing in something, it's putting it into practice. I can say that I believe that chair will take my weight, but unless I sit on it, I'm not putting my faith into action. And so as Christians, we live lives that are holy, and are set apart to God by not valuing the things that the world values, the idols of the world. And we, in fact, we count them as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. People cling to many idols in our world, but we turn our back on those things. Things like money and power, and sex. We don't value them in the way the world values them. They are not ultimate things to us. We see those things as serving God. We see them as, as things that have a good and right and proper place whenever they are used in the service of God. But we turn away from them as idols. We do not worship them. We do not live for them. We live for Christ. And this plays out in many, many ways. And certainly in the second half of the letter, we're going to come on to that. But I want you to take note of this fact again, that Christian faith is active. It is a work of faith. It doesn't mean that you have to go to China as a missionary. It means that you live a life that is distinct in the here and now, by not serving the idols that the people of this world serve. What about laboring in love? Again, it's an active thing. Love is a labor. That's not the worldly idea of love. The worldly idea of love is that you can't help it. It's not what the people say about love. You can't help it. Paul says it's a labor. It's difficult. Sometimes it's hard to love people. You might be looking around you in the room tonight and thinking, yeah, I struggle to love him or her. You might be looking at me and thinking, I struggle to love that guy. Sometimes it's hard to love. But the Christian labors in love. 
We love people who we wouldn't ordinarily love in a worldly way. And it requires us to do something. We can't simply say that we love God or that we love other people. Love motivates us to labor. It motivates us to work towards something that will show that love. We take the connection with verse 9 then, love motivates us to serve. We serve God and we serve one another in the church. I'm going to come on to look more at how all of these things look. Like I said, this is the, this is the basis for the rest of the, of the letter. How do we serve one another? Well, think about even how your presence here this evening or even on the Zoom call. Think about how that's encouraging to the other people who are here. That's living in service of one another. You could be doing any number of other things tonight, but you're here. That's a labor of love. Say especially, and I said in the email that I sent out this morning, this letter is so relevant for our young people. Young people, you, you are an encouragement to the older people in the church. I say that with all sincerity as someone who still considers myself a young person. But you are an encouragement. It's good when you are with us in church. We love to see you here. Think about the prayers that are being answered. Prayers that your parents and grandparents have offered to see you here. I'd love to see more young people at our prayer meetings. I'd love to see more young people on a Sunday. It's an encouragement. It's difficult for a young person to do that. It's difficult for all of us to be here. It's a labor of love. But we serve one another by doing this. And finally, Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' patience of hope. And as I've said, this really is a key theme in the letter. The hope of the return of Christ. The patience of a Christian is something that is motivated by the truth that Jesus will return to this world someday. And that we will spend an eternity with him. Just like an, an athlete is motivated through hours of grim training in the wind and wet and cold because they know there's a reward in front of them. The Christian life is lived in present, but we have an eternal perspective that makes us patient. We rise above the things of this world because our reward is not in this world. It is not temporary like the fading things of this world. The things we might value in this world will all have turned to dust in 100,000 years' time. But we will still be standing in our flesh on the earth, praising the Lord Jesus. Isn't that good news? It's not something that gives us hope, but we've got to be patient. We've got to wait for it. It's not satisfaction immediately. We've got to wait. There is an everlasting glory and bliss, full satisfaction, peace and joy. But we live in the middle time right now. We already know the blessings of God through Christ. 
but we're not yet in that place where we see Jesus face to face. Think about how that changes how you live, how you treat other people. Honour and dignity and respect flow from knowing that there's a day of judgment coming and that only those who are in Christ will be safe. That day of wrath when we as Christians will be saved from the wrath of God by Jesus and enter into eternal and everlasting blessing, escaping the wrath of God. Doesn't that change how you live in the present? Treating people with that honour and dignity and the urgency that comes from not knowing when Jesus will return. So this is very much a foundation lesson in First Thessalonians. What does a Christian look like? They're a person whose life has been changed by the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The way they think and act and feel has been impacted by the gospel in a way that's so obvious that others know. Others know the joy we have in the Holy Spirit. A Christian is not just someone who believes things. It changes how we live. We have faith that works in how we turn away from the things of this world. We turn from idols and turn instead to Jesus. We have love that labors, serving God and other people. And we have a hope which keeps us patient, waiting for the return of Christ. Let me pray for us.